I want to be. There's so many options out there. It's more than, more than the flavors and kinds of Baskin-Robbins ice cream. There's so many options out there that you can consider. So what is it that you're looking for? You think about the churches today. We live in a community of, I don't know, 75,000 people or so. When you take in all around us, that, that all these churches are vying for people to come in and be part of their congregation. And they're trying their best to draw people. This age of the nuns, you know, where there's no, there's, there's no real devotion to any particular congregation. This generation where they have different interests and tastes. And we're trying to draw all these people. And all these churches are trying to find a niche. What are you expecting of Valley View? What are you expecting of this congregation? So many churches will say, uh, we, we, uh, people will say, we've got to have a good youth program, or you've got to have good singing, or you've got to have really good Bible classes. Not, not good enough to have so-so or average. You better have really good this and really good that in order to get people. And it feels almost like churches are stores, people are customers, and every Sunday's Black Friday. We're trying to draw people. Then I want to change the question. What is God's expectation of us? What is God looking to the church to do? Because he's the one who created us. He's the one who, with this design of the church, and it seems like we should ask his opinion. God, what is your expectation of your people? Paul is writing in 1 Timothy. We're finally getting into the text. He's writing to Timothy, who is a preacher set in Ephesus. And he's trying his best to further mature and establish this church. And by the way, this church is the same age as Valley View is. Same number of years it's been in existence. And Paul has great concern, great, great concern for this church. And he's writing back to Timothy, and, he, and he's wanting to help him to establish the church even more strongly, right? Not only does the church need to be established in maturity, but also the apostles are about to leave the scene, you're not going to have the apostolic leadership that you had before. Now Now they're going to leave it in the hands of the next generation of leaders. And, and what's that going to look like? And that's what Paul's concerned about as he writes to Timothy. And he says to him, 1 Timothy chapter 3, I hope to come to you soon. I'd really like to be there, Paul says. I'd like to be there with you. And who wouldn't want a resident apostle? I'd love, instead of having a resident minister, to have a resident apostle. And we can take all our questions. Wouldn't the elders love that? Hey, we're not going to spend 30 minutes on this. Go ask the apostle. He's the inspired person. But you know what? There's not any inspired apostles left, contrary to what some people might argue. No apostles. So what do you do? Well, he says, since I can't be there, I decided I would write you. You know what Paul's saying? My letter is as powerful as my presence. The words I give you in this letter to be read by you and, you know, instituted by you, but also read to the church, this, this is like me being present. So in a very real sense, y'all, while we are left with the scriptures, the scriptures are almost like having the apostles right here. That's why it's our authority. That's why this church will not do things without first primarily consulting the scriptures. It's how we determine God's will because it's inspired by God, Paul will say to Timothy later on. It's God-breathed, and so the scriptures are over us. While we have the scriptures in our hands, the scriptures 
or what give us definition and purpose. We submit to the word. And that's where the church comes out of. But here's something else that I think is really important for us to apply to this. The letters of Paul are just as authoritative as the words of Jesus. Some of you may be carrying a Bible I absolutely hate. Here's a Bible I absolutely hate. Puts the words of Jesus in red. How many have one? Go ahead, man. Paul Wallace. Uh-huh. Okay, all right. It's okay. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not worried about it. But here's, here's what I am afraid of. We'll do like Thomas Jefferson did, cut out Jesus' words and say the rest of it's secondary. That is not true. Jesus himself said before he left, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and what he's going to do is he's going to come into, your, come into you and help you remember everything I said, and you're going to record the things that I said and shared with you, and you're going to write them down for future generations. The words of Paul in 1 Corinthians, the words of James in James, the words of Jude in Jude are just like hearing words from Jesus. Do not pit them against each other. This is absolutely certain, and Paul would tell us this. The scriptures are important, and, and for very fundamental reasons. But he goes on to say, notice this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write to you. Since I can't be there, I'm going to write to you so that I'll be present in letters at least. And he said, I'm writing these things to you so that, and here's why he's writing, the so that is the purpose. This is why we're starting a study in 1 Timothy, not in 1 Timothy 1.1, but in 1 Timothy 3. That's a weird place to start, except that's where Paul tells us why he's writing. And you always need to know when you read a letter, why did he write this? He wrote it so that if I'm delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Do you know what 1 Timothy is? It's Paul's instructions for how we ought to behave in the household of God. God's got this household structure that he wants us to honor. And so this is, this is kind of weird because you won't hear this in most places. Uh, most people will say they'll come to church and the church has got a, this, this posture of saying, uh, can this church win me? Can this church get my attention? Can this church entertain me enough? Can this church whatever, you fill in the blank. But what God is saying through this passage is, you should walk in and say, can I be willing to submit to the expectations of God from this church? That's really what we should be saying. You don't hear this much, as I said, you don't hear from anybody. It makes total sense, though, given what he's talked about. At your house, what goes? What language do, your, do the family members, the members of your household, what language do they use in talking to each other? Do you ever have to stop and say, now listen, we don't talk that way in this family. You ever say that? You ever say, we don't watch shows like that in our family. In this house, there are certain rules. The therapists will tell you this, counselors will tell you this. Whether you can actually state them or not, every family has rules that govern how it functions. They might be stated, they might be unstated, but there are rules that govern the lives of the members of this house. Somebody pays the bills. Somebody has to make decisions when the, the opinions are varied among all the members. Somebody has to decide that. Somebody has to, that's the function of a household. And God is saying to us, this household that you entered 
when you came up this hill, you didn't actually enter it. You already were part of it. But then you come into the assembly like this, and do you know whose house we're in? Anybody know whose house we're in right now? God's house. He's the head of this house. He's the one that decides what we're going to believe and what we're going to do. There's certain things, y'all, that I think would be cool in worship. There's certain things I think we should bring in that would make fun and might even draw people. But you know what? This is not my house. And God's house has certain structure to it, a certain rules that govern what we do in this house and as members of it wherever we go. And that's what he's reminding us of. I, I, there are a lot of churches that say, just come as you are. We'll accept anybody as you are. And you know what? I want us to be better at that. I want us to accept people just the way they are. But when you come in, remember this. We'll take you just as you are, but we will love you too much to leave you that way. You're coming into God's house, and once you enter God's house, you start taking part in his life, in his community, in his way of life, and you start changing. If you're still the way you were when you came, we're not doing our job as a church of telling you that there's a household rules that govern how we live and what we believe. And they all root about who we are and about our roles in the church. How we live is determined by our function. And he gives three descriptions of who we are in this passage. The first one is you're the household of God, right? Household. That means God is the head and we are the brothers and sisters. And we honor the ethic set by the head of the house. That's what he's saying with household of God. Second one, he says you are the household of God, the church of the living God, the called out ones, the assembled ones. So we gather here. Listen, there's a, there's a very real sense that you can't be part of the household of God if you don't assemble with the, gods, with the people of God. There's a strong assembly flavor to this. We are the called out ones to assemble together in the presence of the living God. We don't serve a dead God. We serve a God not only who's living, but who's fully present in this place. He's watching. He's participating with us. He's called us to this. The church of the living God. And then there's the third one. We are a pillar and buttress of the truth. This is weird language we don't use. I have to say this. No, I'll say it later. It's just a little weird. It happened after early service. Pillar and buttress of the truth. We are the people who hold up the truth. That's our function. This is our primary function. We house, proclaim, defend the truth of God. That is our function. If we ever compromise the truth, we are no longer church. We are no longer the household of God. We exist to promote and proclaim the word of God and the gospel. And if we're not doing that, we're not being who we are. And so those are the three, uh, the, the three descriptions he gives. And he goes on to, um, to say then what that great confession is, and we'll talk about that in a second. So, those are the descriptions. If you are, according to this passage, if you are in the household of God, there's a few characteristics that he's giving here that we need to honor. Being in the household of God means that you have certain order and certain oversight. 
This is something you can't clearly see in this passage, but you jump up to verse 5, and it's on the screen for you. This is when he's talking about elders and deacons. The only leadership structure in the New Testament that we have is elders and deacons. And as he's talking about elders, just above this passage in 1 Timothy 3, he says, this elder has certain characteristics. It doesn't talk about the job description. That's the hardest thing to nail down. What's the job description of an elder? What he does describe is the godly character of an elder. A person who's supposed to have this exhibit a certain kind of character. And he must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? God says, I want my church to be cared for, and I want a structure. And that structure is elders who are godly people who've proven by their lives that they're embodying this truth that we hold and that we protect. Don't have a lot to say about what elders do necessarily right here, but he does say this, they better have a certain character. I've been part of churches before, and probably you have too, where we pick the successful guy in the world, the one who has a good business, or, or we, we look at the person who has some kind of uh, excellence about them in the, in the world somewhere. That's not the main criteria God chooses. And the main point of all these qualifications, we call them, the main point is this, are they godly people who fully embrace the message of the gospel? Are they really? Those are the kinds of people God wants managing, caring for his church, which might mean a farmer who never graduated from high school. It doesn't have to be a college graduate. It's someone who knows God and loves God and serves God and has all his life and he's in love with his wife, all these things. This is the character of a person God wants caring for his church. None of this fancy structure that will fall over ourselves trying to figure it out. Simple structure. That's what household of God means. Being part of the household of God also means that it's about godly conduct. That's why he says this is the way you ought Notice you'll say, you ought to behave in the household of God. There is a standard for how you ought to behave. And as a family member of the house that is overseen by God, it's his house, it's not any kind of etiquette in our world. Our primary concern is not to be socially acceptable. And when you see churches that look just like the world, it's a little funny because the household of God looks totally different than the culture out of which it comes. That is not how we determine things. And we gotta do this because the pressure of the culture, listen, maybe there's something to be learned from culture, don't be dumb to it, but at the same time, that is not what determines the ethic guiding our lives as members of the household of God. There's a conduct we ought to honor, and it's set by God, not our culture, not our preferences, not even our own opinions. We don't choose it. We are not the choosers of it. We did not design it. We don't create it. We just recognize it's from God, and we are the pillar and foundation, right? We just honor it and defend it, even when sometimes we don't quite understand it. That's who we are. That's why the church must always be a little out of step with the rest of the world. It's never going to look the same. 
Being the household of God is about this structure and this oversight. Being, about, being the household of God is about this different conduct. It's called godliness, being like God who is our Father. And being the household of God is about upholding this truth. And he goes on to say, the pillar and buttress of the truth. I don't ever use the word buttress. I don't even know really what it means. I mean, I've studied it for this. But I do know this, Brock Malone, in early service, Sometimes I wonder if he's paying any attention at all, but then sometimes he'll prove to me he is. And I said this, pillar and buttress of the truth, which means you hold it up. It's held up in honor. It's held up in our behavior. It's held up in our preaching. We honor it. We preach it. We won't alter it at all. We just hold it up. We don't create it. The buttress. And he looks at his grandpa and he says, Grandpa, you're the buttress of our family. And his, fa- his grandfather just, he said, I, I listened to that and I go, thank you, right? He's saying you're like, and he is. He watches the grandkids. He kind of leads the family. He's kind of the patriarch of the family. So he is the butcher. I don't think that's really what he meant, but that's what this means. You're kind of holding it all up. You're kind of the defender of it. We are going to proclaim it. This is the number one mission of the church. And out of this mission flows our identity. And here's the thing. Everything that we do, no matter what it is, whether it's Saturday night when you've got trunk or treating coming, whether you've got different things going, whatever you do as a church must come back to this. It must come back to this identity of we are holding out the truth to a world. This world, this, he calls this truth a mystery of godliness. You'll see that in verse 16. Great indeed we confess, this is our confession, is the mystery of godliness. If you're going to be godly and I'm going to be godly, taking the materials God's got to work with, There's something, you're looking at this, and I know when some of you come in, it's like, okay, uh, we accept you as you are, but we want you to know you're going to be in process of changing as you come here. We're going to be patient. We're going to be gracious just like God is, because here's the thing. When I think about you and me being godly, like God, it's laughable, isn't it, to think about us taking on some of the character of the very God we serve. How is that possible? It is possible if you know the secret. And the church, as a, as, as a pillar, right, as a pillar of the truth, we know the secret. It's called Jesus. It's called the gospel. We know what the secret is, but the world doesn't, and they're mystified. How can you call yourselves godly people? I know, we're mystified by it too, except for the fact we know the mystery, and we're proclaiming it into the world, and here it is. It's this song from the first century. I think these are two verses. I'm going to tell you what I think, although... Don't, don't take the breaking up of this as inspired. It's not. But it's just weird how this goes. So the first part is, he was manifested in the flesh. How many in here believe Jesus took on human flesh while maintaining his godness? Hold up your hands. That's the heart of godliness. Now, there's a lot of people in the world, I can't accept that. Well, then the mystery's lost on them. It stays mysterious. It stays out of reach. The secret is beyond their grasp. But listen, you believe in a God who entered this story. That's part of the song. Second line, he was vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated means proven true. Spirit proved everything Jesus said and did was true by raising him back from the dead. How many believe Jesus was raised from the dead? Raise your hand. Yes, raise your hand for a risen Savior. That's right. Okay, that's the second thing. Number three, 
He was seen by angels. I'm not sure what this means. I mean, I know, seen by angels. But what's that talking about? I think the angels witnessed the resurrection like no human did. But they also witnessed him ascending into the throne room of God and doing the high priestly duties of his enthronement. And there you have the work of Jesus in verse 1. This, y'all, is the mystery of holiness. You, you will join with this in your death, burial, and resurrection and baptism. You will believe this, and you will unite with this, and, this, and you will be risen with Christ. And this amazing work of Jesus is the absolute secret and essence of being like God. And those of you gathered here who've done that, you are godly people. Second verse. He was proclaimed among the nations... This has already happened to some extent when Paul's writing. It's happened a lot since then. He was proclaimed among the nations. That's where the people, the believers, go out and preach the truth. He was believed on in the world. People believed that preaching, and they applied that work of Jesus. And thirdly, he was taken up into glory. This sounds a lot like ascension, and it may be. But it also may be that every time that people respond to him, Jesus is more and more glorified and and. And his glory just continues to rise as people believe in him. That's what I would think. This second verse is the work of the church. We take the work of Jesus that he's already done perfectly. We don't do anything to it. We don't contribute to it. But we take that and we proclaim it in the world. This is the role of the church. All the other stuff we do is a method of doing it. But what we do and what we're here for from God is to make known the mystery of godliness wrapped up in Jesus through his work. That's what we are here for. If we ever fail that, I don't know why we're here. We're the only group in the whole earth whose job and responsibility assigned by God is to make sure we keep that story pure, we defend it from everybody who tries to undermine it, we proclaim it to everyone who needs to hear it, and we make sure that it's kept safe and available for anybody who needs to respond to it. That is what the church does. That role is not Harding's, that role is not CRA's, that role is not anybody else's but the church. And if we get involved in secondary things to where we don't do that anymore, we are no longer the church of God. There's one other thing. We are in the household of God. We take care of each other. This is not obvious. It's in the word household. But Paul uses the word church two chapters on from this. In chapter 5, I want you to see it as we wrap up. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that they may care. It may care for those who are truly widows. In this weird chapter, which we're going to get to, and it is odd, it's all the logistics of how the church helps the widows in the first century. What he is saying is, when you're in the household of God, one of the ways you demonstrate to the world what it looks like when you're godly is we take care of everyone who's in this household. We look after them. 
We care for them, we provide for them, we, we, we encourage them. In the first century, when, the, when you reach this older age of being a widow or a widower, listen, there were no nursing homes, there was no social security, there was nothing. Who looked after them? Families. What if families didn't? The church did. And Paul lays out all these, these things in chapter 5 about what kind of widows you should help, but the church needs to, to do this. And you may remember in Acts chapter 6, one of the big things is they fed all the widows. You remember that? The church takes care of everyone in the household. This is difficult for us because there's so many of us in here. Sometimes you'll get an email about something happening among family members at Valley View, and you don't even know who the person is. Maybe they come to the early service, you don't ever see them. And yet they're family, how do you do that? That's a little difficult, and I don't think it demands that you know everybody and look after everybody and all that. But listen, we do need to concern ourselves. Melissa and I are trying this. We're trying to look at this and say, Every week, how do we express care for the members? Outside of being here together, when you try to see everybody as they come in the door and all that, but during the week, do you spend any time whatsoever, even small, thinking about other fellow believers who are in need of your prayer and your attention? That's what being household of God means. We look after each other. We become aware of the needs. And there are needs all around here. Listen to the announcements, but don't listen to the announcements as, oh man, we got to get through this, or we just got to hear them all. Listen, that's a family roll call of people who need some attention. What can you do? And you're good at this, Valley. I'm not getting on to you. It's going to sound like I'm. There's so many of them. I'll go around this. You know how many cards I've got? And they'll brag about this pile of cards. That's called being a household of God. And then you got people like de- facing death or, uh, and, and what happens. And I've never seen a church better at attending funerals than Valley View members. It's an amazing thing. And I love to see it. And that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to look after each other. So that when Jean West loses her beloved husband and she's just beside herself, she has to say, don't make any visits. Do you know why she has to say that? Because if she doesn't, casserole city right boom piles up and you got to figure out what to do with all this food and 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 all that is is people loving each other in the household of God and Timothy wants us to know that's part of the whole household of God thing there's a proper order there's a structure to being the household of God there there's a conduct a character about being in the family of God. There, there's, there's a responsibility, a mission of holding up the truth, and then, and then there's a love that's supposed to characterize the household of God. When you decide whether you're going to mess with the church or not, what congregation to be part of, don't use some superficial measurement to make a choice. It's got to be more, it's got to be more than just fun. It's got to be more than just good music. It's got to be more than that. It needs to be a church that's on the mission that God gave it. He's the one who sets the pace for this. You need to be part of a church that really is particular about how you behave. Not just any behavior will do. That would be the household of God. With a simple structure that doesn't get in the way. That loves its members and by all means guards, holds up, proclaims, and defends the amazing mystery of godliness that's the heart of everything, that gives definition to everything we do. You'll be able to hear it spoken. You'll be able to see it lived. And you'll want to be part of it if you have a concern for God's expectations at all. 
You'll, be one, you'll want to be part of it. And listen, you'll be willing to submit your expectation to God's expectation. There's a way we ought to behave. There's a way the household of God ought to be. And we're not perfect at it, never will be, but we're striving for it. And if that's where you want to be, in the household of God striving its best to meet God's expectation, you found the right place. And you can help us a whole lot, and we would love to have you. And if you're part of it already, you know what you're called to. Let's be the household of God as we live our lives. Anyone who needs to respond this morning, if you want to be part of the household, God lets us know how. You become part, you're born again, right? You're born of the water and of the Spirit. You decide, I want to, to rely on the, the salvation given me by my brother Christ, right? And so you come down, you confess the name of Jesus, you're immersed in the waters of baptism, you rise to walk a new life. If you're in the household of God and you've acted in a way that's totally inappropriate for a place that's the household of God, and you need to repent, and it takes a public repentance, we'd love to receive that too as we stand and as we sing to encourage you.